Welcome to the Faces of Assassination podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I am Ana Paula Oliveira. Throughout this series of podcasts, we will be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. And crucially, we will discuss how you can play a part in tackling this important issue by joining the Global Initiative's Assassination Witness campaign. Recently, we featured an episode which focused on those who investigated high-profile assassinations. That can be found by visiting our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net. In this special edition podcast, I spoke with international human rights lawyer and scholar Roxana Altos, clinical professor of law at UC Berkeley and associate director, International Human Rights Law Clinic. She has coordinated and supervised litigation cases before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and national jurisdictions. I began by asking her to explain what the biggest challenges are in bringing assassination cases before national and regional courts. Yeah, that's a big question. So there is there are a host of challenges to trying to seek uh, truth and justice and reparations in these cases. So I am a human rights attorney. That means that most of the cases that I've handled, most of the families that I've represented and, and victims are the victims of state-sponsored violence. So either uh, members of the police or, or military directly involved in the act of violence or cooperating or tolerating actions by paramilitaries. And most of my cases have involved extrajudicial killings, massacres, torture, and forced disappearance. So we're talking about the, the most egregious forms of human rights abuses. I think there are challenges all along the way. Mostly I've represented women, the mothers, the, the daughters, the sisters, the spouses of victims of human rights. And I don't think that's coincidence in many of the communities that I've worked with. It's the women who have been the protectors of truth and who could not tolerate the injustice and the impunity. And at great personal risk, have decided to step forward and participate in the struggle on behalf of their family members. And so I think one of the you know, first challenges is just the, the security, the not just physical, but mental integrity of, of the individuals and families and communities that are fighting for justice in these cases. They face continued attack, intimidation, and threat. So that is that is an enormous challenge. Access to information can also be a challenge. Part of the way that states have sponsored violence, a component or a part of the anatomy of impunity has been concealing information, destroying information. And so having access to information to, to demonstrate the state's involvement or responsibility for the crime or the violation has also historically been, been a challenge. Just to exemplify, to illustrate this dynamic, I, I litigated a, a case against Guatemala before the Inter-American Commission in court. It was actually 28 cases we were litigating at the same time, and I had 124 clients in, the, in that case. And it, the cases all involved forced disappearances that occurred during 
a very violent period in Guatemala's history in the early 80s when the military sought to bring the civil conflict to the city of Guatemala and to eliminate any support for guerrilla rebel groups. And they engaged in a policy of forced disappearance. And my clients were family members of around 20, well, it was 183 forced disappearance that occurred in this period. But my clients were the family members of a few dozen. And all along the 30-year struggle for, for justice in these cases, Guatemala took steps to hide information, to conceal information, to destroy information about this policy of forced disappearance. Eventually, a, a document was leaked out of Guatemala, was smuggled out of Guatemala that contained um, passport-sized pictures of each of the victims and details about how they were disappeared. So those efforts to conceal information eventually failed, but it was not thanks to, to the state of Guatemala, to the government of Guatemala, that we were able to discover what happened and eventually even recover some of the remains of the victims. And I guess that leads to the counterintuitive point, which is that these cases aren't necessarily difficult to solve. People know what happened, especially when the state is involved. There can be documentary evidence of what happened, but it is really because of states' efforts to conceal information that these crimes remain in impunity. Roxana, you mentioned the importance and difficulty at the same time in collecting evidence. We have seen that it can be very challenging when investigating and prosecuting intellectual actors of heads. Individuals charged for those crimes are often those who pull the trigger, against who you will have physical evidence, and the intellectual authors will remain largely unpunished. This can be powerful gang leaders, public officials, and businessmen with ties to organized crime and organized corrupted networks. What do you think is needed to set up a successful investigation case and dismantle these criminal structures? I think part of what is needed is to investigate the cases in their social political context. And so, for example, with Berta Cáceres' case, when we were asked to conduct an independent and impartial investigation of the murder, but also of the criminal investigation Honduran authorities were conducting into the murder, we knew that it was really important to understand the murder in context. It would be counterproductive to try to investigate the murder as an, an isolated incident. The murder occurred in 2016, in March, but we went back to 2009 because that's when the company first received a concession for the river, and then 2010 when the company began to work on the hydroelectric project. And what we were able to document were 135 incidents of aggression, attacks, intimidation, threats against opponents to the dam project. So Berta Cáceres' murder was really a culmination of years of crimes. And Because we wanted to understand the criminal network, the criminal enterprise behind the attack, it was necessary to view that, that murder in that context. It was really because we looked at the murder in context, we were able to 
exposed the network of company executives, state officials, hitmen, international lenders that were responsible for the murder, but also had a responsibility or a role in enabling the dozens and dozens and dozens of crimes that were occurring in order to get this dam project completed. I also think that it isn't really the case that information isn't available. So much of our lives now are documented, documented online, documented on the electronic devices that we use. But I think that often it is probably possible to capture the roles that different individuals play in these crimes. You know, in in Berta Cáceres' case, it was the smartphones that were key to the investigation because we had access to a really small fraction of the electronic digital information available because the public ministry wouldn't share all of it, but we had access to some of it. We were able to understand the composition of the, of the criminal network that was involved in that crime. And I think we've seen that in a lot of high-profile cases, that there are people are, are, are surprisingly brazen in, in their certainty that their conduct will remain in impunity. And so they will use their electronic devices and, and record, document their criminal activities, thinking that it will never see the light of day. So what do you think needs to be done to bring these people to justice? I think the cliched response to that question is political will. In the cases that I've worked on, it's not the absence of, of a functioning state. It's that the state has been perverted to serve the economic interests, the political interests of a small elite. I think in the human rights movement, we've seen how uh, particularly indigenous uh, communities, uh, Afro-diaspora communities in Latin America have been systematically have been the targets of, of murder and, and threats and intimidation and violence because um, those communities are the guardians of our natural resources. So unfortunately, in, in many of the countries where these, this violence is occurring, countries like Mexico and Colombia and Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador and others, the government, the state, is no longer serving the interests of their citizens, of, their, of the residents. They're serving the interests the economic interests, the political interests of a really small group of people. So in order to, to dismantle the criminal networks uh, responsible for violence in regions like Latin America, it is becoming increasingly urgent to examine uh, the economic and political models that are creating the, the inequity. Criminal investigations and criminal prosecutions is a very narrow and limited tool. It's not really possible to address the underlying causes of violence through a criminal investigation and criminal prosecution. And so really to dismantle these groups, to create the political will, to redirect the state so it better serves the interests of the entire population, including the poor, racial groups that have been marginalized historically, that have been disenfranchised, 
it's necessary to make a, a political movement, uh, a political decision to, to address the economic model, the political model that is leading to gross inequities and inequalities. And you mentioned that you were one of the leading lawyers on the Berta Cáceres murder case. Now, in this case, the authorities' first attempt to move that murder was a crime of passion. Um, what do you think are the consequences of misdirecting an investigation right from the start? In other words, how important is identifying the right motive in order to have a solid case? Well, the first hours and days after a murder are, are key to the investigation. I think that is the reason why it was misdirected. What did authorities achieve in focusing the investigation, as the Minister of Security says, uh, un lío de faldas, crime of passion, in its early days? So the crime scene in Berta's case was contaminated. We do not see, we did not see evidence that even all the ballistic evidence was collected. We did not see evidence that some of the forensic evidence was collected. So we know from witness testimony, for example, that Berta scratched her assailant and have never seen evidence that the material underneath her fingernails was collected. And then in also misdirecting the investigation There was a public relations effort. In fact, the company had hired a public relations firm, and, and we saw in, in the WhatsApp chat that we reviewed that it was important uh, to the company that the murder be framed as a crime of passion because the company was seeking to preserve the project, to move forward with the project, and was concerned that If they were implicated, if the company was implicated, it would undermine their efforts to, to move forward with the project and ultimately their bottom line. Memories fade. Witnesses become scared. Evidence is lost. Those are all the implications of misdirecting an investigation early on. But also I think that it's public opinion. You know, we are creatures that are swayed easily And first impressions are extraordinarily important. And so if in Berta's case, the government's efforts, the company's efforts to frame this as a crime of passion was also an effort to influence, to control public opinion. I think what they didn't calculate was the extraordinary job Berta had done in forming transnational alliances, the strong solidarity networks that she was a part of that weren't going to be influenced and swayed by their efforts to misdirect the investigation and frame the murder as a crime of passion. And it was really because of those networks, because of the extraordinary bravery of her family, of her colleagues in, in Honduras, and the solidarity networks that they had internationally, that the investigation eventually was redirected. And Roxana, you highlighted the role of private companies in this case. And from our research on assassinations, you may have seen that private companies are facilitating at some extent the assassinations of land defenders, environmentalists, such as Werther herself. 
What type of accountability mechanism exists to hold those corporations accountable? One of the extraordinary aspects of Berta's case is the amount of bloodshed that took place in service of a, of a 14 megawatt hydroelectric dam project, so a quite modest project. The company involved in Berta's murder was enabled by international lenders. So in 2013, there was a protest and a member of the military shot and killed an activist uh, that was opposing the dam project. And so already in 2013, there was a lot of conflict caused by the dam project in this community. We're talking about a very poor communities. The dam project entered. They made a host of promises. They paid families that had some power in those communities for land so that they were economically invested in in the project. They also were hiring informants to surveil Berta and Copin and the other activists and communities that were opposing the project. And so they were economically compromised with the project. And even in 2013, despite the conflict, despite the bloodshed, despite the violence, 2013, FMO, FinFund, the Central American Bank for Economic Integration, so these development banks whose mission is to combat privacy, decided to double down on the project and invest. And we think through the chats and and through the evidence that we reviewed, we think that the company used the money that they received from this influx of cash that they received from the banks in 2013 to hire a public relations forum, to expand their security team. And that led to more violence. It led to more intimidation. And I asked myself this all through the investigation. For a 14 megawatt dam, why so much bloodshed? And and the, the fact was that the economic dynamic of this project compelled that bloodshed. The company stood to make a sizable profit over a 40-year concession. So each year that they had this concession, they to make a sizable profit for the dam project. And the international development banks were a witness to a high level of violence and conflict and yet decided to double down and invest in the project. In fact, what we know is that although the banks have now withdrawn from the project, they did not require the company to pay back the money, the loans. And so the company still to this day has the concession and stayed with part of of the loans that these banks provided, which is to me mind-blowing. I've also been involved in in investigating other projects, uh, development projects in other countries. And unfortunately, the dynamics that I saw in, in Berta's case are not unusual. There is a decision that the the development project is going to move forward. That decision is made in a way that that doesn't really 
consult with or secure the consent of the communities. And once that decision is made, the opposition of, of the communities is just considered an obstacle that needs to be overcome. It's not considered in, in many of these hydroelectric dam projects or extractive projects a deal breaker. I was really shocked. I read a report written by Sarah Chase about corruption in Honduras, and she interviewed an official with one of the development banks that uh, financed the project. And by the time the report was written, you know, Betha's murder had already happened. And she asked the, uh, the official, what have you learned from this experience? And the official responded, what I lear- I've learned is to be careful about how we conduct development projects where an NGO has influence over the community. That's the lesson that he drew, that the danger is the NGO. The danger is not a company that has decided to pursue a bottom line at any cost. That's really shocking. And do you think that after all the work you've done on Berta's case, can you identify any success or failure in this investigation? What do you think are the lessons learned? So the criminal investigation in Honduras from the beginning had a number of issues. In the beginning stage of the investigation, investigators focused on Berta's colleagues as suspects for the murder. So the, the theory of, of the crime for them was that this was a crime of passion. And in doing so, the investigation lost critical moments and, and really crucial moments for a successful investigation and prosecution. The investigators, the prosecutors and the investigators that are, are looking at the murder failed to do so in context. And they've even failed to review all the information that they have at their disposal. So we began investigating in November of 2016, so a few months after the murder. And it wasn't until July 2017 that the prosecutors agreed to share with us a small fraction of the digital evidence that they had. So by that point, by July 2017, the prosecutors had recovered dozens of cell phones, SIM cards, computers, tablets, all kinds of electronic devices. They had also requested and received call logs from the telephone companies for small time period. So really, they had only requested from February to April. The murder happened in March, the call logs. But they did never review the information. We met with prosecutors in November of 2017. It was the first time they agreed to actually meet with us on the day that we released the report. We expected to go in the meeting and, and compare notes, tell them about what we had seen in, in the evidence and hear from them in an informed way, their thoughts on the investigation. And the head prosecutor in November 2017, so they had been sitting on this evidence for a year and a half, had not read even a whole extraction report about one of the cell phones. The prosecutors also have, in my view, really resisted investigating the state involvement in this murder. So we know that, and, and he's been convicted now, 
that an active member of the military, someone who was on course to become a lieutenant colonel, was involved in the murder, Mariano Diaz. When he's arrested in May of 2016, he has his cell phone. When they raid his, his home, they recover additional electronic devices. None of the information that was recovered from those electronic devices was revealed at trial or has been revealed since. You know, if you'd asked me whose cell phone I was most interested in seeing, it would have been Mariano Diaz, this active member of the military. Not because only he was an active member of the military, but because of the role that we know that he played in the murder, which included providing the hitmen with weapons. But none of that information, to my knowledge, none of the digital evidence related to him has been has been reviewed. I believe that the prosecutor, a year after recovering his cell phone, said that all the information had been erased, which is really worrisome. So I think that the investigation was misdirected from the beginning, and the investigation is still incomplete. Key evidence was lost in suspicious circumstances. Key evidence has not been reviewed. And lines of investigation have not been comprehensively and thoroughly followed. So the state itself has not been part of this investigation, although an active member of the military has already been arrested, indicted, convicted. And also executives, that it's clear from the evidence were involved in the murder, have not been indicted, have not been tried, have not been prosecuted for the murder. And so what we have after four years are hitmen convicted in, for the crime. We have one mid-level manager, the person who was the head of social and environmental issues for the company, convicted of the crime. An active member of the military, the former head of security, and we have the CEO of the company, who has been indicted and in preventative detention for over two years, and we're still waiting for his trial. So you can see kind of the resistance to justice in this case, despite all the attention, despite all the, the effort, despite the acts of bravery of the family and, and the solidarity of, of civil society organizations, Berta Cáceres' murder remains in impunity. And the criminal network responsible for not just her murder, but years and years of violence remains largely intact. And the company still has the concession for the river and has the loans to carry out the project. It's really remarkable that even in high-profile cases, such as Berta's, the rate of solvability remains relatively low. Uh, you have spoken about the devastating impact on society that a lack of criminal justice can have on the community and the victim's family. Do you have any final recommendation for the international community, national governments, and the civil society that might help tackle the problem of impunity? I think that Gasset's case, the team that conducted the, the impartial and independent investigation was called Gaipe, and we did so because the Casares family 
wanted originally the Inter-American Commission to reach an agreement with the Honduran government. And in a way similar to what was done with the Oyotzinapa case, the disappearance of the 43 students in Mexico, get an independent panel of experts with an official mandate to investigate the crime. Honduras refused to agree, but then the family members and organizations decided to move forward, which I thought was really novel and important. And so the five of us who were a member of this team, we had no official mandate, but we spent a year investigating this case. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that the evidence is there. It's not that the cases are impossible to solve or really difficult to solve. What is necessary is for there to exist the technical capacity and the independence and impartiality to conduct these investigations in a comprehensive and thorough way. So I think that Gaipe really represents a new model where you have civil society taking what it's learned about impunity over the last few decades, taking what it's learned about how human rights abuses and corruption go hand in hand. They're really twins. And bringing that, leveraging that knowledge, that expertise to conduct a parallel criminal investigation. And, you know, we were fortunate to have the digital evidence because, you know, in most of Latin America, there are three parties to a criminal prosecution. So you have the public prosecutor and, of course, the defense. And in most countries in Latin America, you also have a private prosecutor that represents the interests of the victims and their families and can intervene directly in a criminal proceeding. And because so it was through the private prosecutor that we obtained this digital evidence and we could help support finding out what happened and exposing the criminal network responsible for for Berta's crime. So I do think there's a path forward. And I think that civil society can rethink how it becomes involved in these investigations and how, given the history of shielding the state from responsibility in these criminal prosecutions, how civil society can support private prosecutors in these cases. A lot of the resources, a lot of the energy has, has gone into bolstering, strengthening state institutions. But as we're seeing with CC, those, those state institutions can be dismantled. And so I think Gaipe represents an interesting new model of civil society directly intervening in, in these cases through the private prosecutor. That said, I would say that criminal investigations and prosecutions have limits. A lot of the communities and families I've worked with, legal accountability, criminal accountability is not a priority. They're looking to dismantle the networks, the enterprises that are responsible. They're looking for safety. They're they're looking to address the root causes of the violations, which requires measures that aren't available through a criminal investigation and prosecution. 
I think too often in Latin America, we've seen that even when we're able to move forward with prosecutions, you cut the head off the snake, a hundred heads appear in its place. Um, and so I think we have to think critically about the limits of, of criminal accountability for addressing human rights abuses and corruption. And we have to think about why corruption and the human rights abuses exist, who they serve, and how economic and political models are contributing to this dynamic. In Honduras, for example, state capture exists. We don't have a failed state in Honduras. We have a very powerful state. The problem in Honduras is the power of the state is being used to serve the economic and political interests of a very small circle, a small circle that includes some foreign governments, including my government, the United States. I don't think anyone can really argue that in Honduras, the state serves the interests of the population, much less the interests of indigenous communities that have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised and more and more are subjected to very high rates of violence. And, and some of that violence at the very hands of, of military and police that should be protecting them. I saw that very clearly in, in the Cáceres case. Copín was exercising its legitimate right to protest, exercising freedom of association, freedom of speech. And because their position was in opposition to a dam project, activists and advocates paid with their lives and communities were torn apart. So I do think it's, it is possible to find a path forward for criminal prosecutions. Uh, however, I do think we have to think critically about what we achieve through political prosecutions. That's it for this special edition of Faces of Assassination podcast. A big thank you to Roxana Altox for taking the time to speak to us today. If you would like to hear more episodes of Faces of Assassination, roundtable discussions with some of the leading experts in the field, such as investigating an assassination, journalists or mediators, please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net. Subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast series. Help us remember the death anniversaries using our hashtag assassinationwitness. You can also download a free ebook which profiles 50 victims of assassination who have yet to receive justice. The best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up against crime is to keep the memories alive and with our collective memory shine a light into this darkness. This was Faces of Assassination podcast. I'm Ana Paula Oliveira. Thanks for listening. <music>